RX. I'm Kurt Anderson, and this is the Studio 360 Podcast. With the news that after a 67-year run, the usual gang of idiots will stop creating satire and spoofs, we are revisiting our American icon story about Mad Magazine. After the current August issue, old material will be reprinted with fresh covers. But you or your children or your grandchildren will almost never find any new Mad Magazine parodies or cartoons in those pages. This really is the end of an era. Generations of comedy writers and other funny people were raised on Mad Magazine, and its influence can be seen on TV shows like The Simpsons and The Daily Show and South Park and in The New Yorker and practically everywhere. But before you hear that American Icon story, I want to remind you that you can follow us and keep in touch with what we're thinking and doing at Twitter. We are at Studio360Show. Now, the Mad Magazine American Icon story. Who said you could go in my office? We're exploring. But all we found was a large collection of Mad Magazines. It's a gas! When I was a little kid growing up in Nebraska back in the 1960s, there wasn't much in the way of fresh, funny subversiveness for children to consume. Yeah, Bugs Bunny and Looney Tunes on TV, but those were already decades old. And current magazines for kids, such as Highlights for Children and Boy's Life, seem like relics from our parents' childhoods. Then there was Mad Magazine. People say Dr. Spock gave us the first whole generation of spoiled children. If so, Mad turned them into smart alecks on a scale the world had never seen. We asked Trey Kay to figure out how this odd little New York magazine became such an important institution. In the 1950s, serious thinkers believed comic books were polluting young minds. People like Frederick Wortham, an influential psychiatrist. The real question is this. Are comic books good or are they not good? If you want to raise a generation that is half stormtroopers and half cannon fodder with a dash of illiteracy, then comic books are good. In fact, they are perfect. Wortham called his book about comics, Seduction of the Innocent. One of the best seducers was William Gaines, publisher of EC Comics. He was a comic book innovator who was churning out entertaining crime, war, and sci-fi comics, as well as horror comics like Tales from the Crypt, which were inspired by 1940s radio drama. And Gaines started kicking around the idea of making a comic book that would spoof other comic books. And so he came up with Mad Comics. That's Maria Reidelbach, author of Completely Mad, a history of the comic book and magazine. And from the very beginning, it was really wild. He was going places where comics had never gone before. Mad Comics hit the stands in 1952 with stories about Super Duper Man and Batman. Not the Batman we know and love from... Uh... DC Comics. This is a Batman who, who wants to uh, knock up Wonder Woman and get her in the kitchen barefoot and pregnant. And there she is. That's Mad Comics were doing great until the whole comic book industry was called before a United States Senate subcommittee investigating juvenile delinquency back in 1954. You think that does the children lots of good to read those things, do you? I don't think it does them a bit of good, sir, but I don't think it does them a bit of harm either. That's Bill Gaines at the hearing. 
But before Congress could make any laws, comic publishers offered to self-regulate by forming the Code of the Comics Association. There would be no more shooting, no kissing, no fun, basically. He saw the writing on the wall, and what he decided to do was to try to transform his comics into something even more evolved. And what that was was a sort of a magazine format, a hybrid format. See, comic books were being censored, but magazines were not. So instead of colorful pages, Gaines published black and white illustrations on cheap paper. And there was no more artist hand lettering. Now everything would be typeset. The changes didn't work well for horror and crime comics, but they let Mad's original editor, Harvey Kurtzman, broaden his horizons. Harvey Kurtzman started mining all of American culture at that point. When he was doing Mad Comics, he was mainly focusing on parodying other comics. But when he went into Mad Magazine, he started parodying newspapers, you know, TV shows. TV was new then, uh, movies, Broadway musicals, you know, anything he could get his hands on. Mad invented the sensibility we now call snarky. Sociologist Todd Gitlin wrote about Mad in his book, The 60s, Years of Hope, Days of Rage. He said, If consumer culture achieved some of its power by taking itself hyper-seriously, Mad pulled the plug and said, Hey, the Lone Ranger, Wonder Bread, TV commercials, even Marlon Brando are ridiculous. I had this feeling that a lot of the official proclamations, slogans, icons of the moment were fraudulent or stupid. And what was fun and exhilarating about MAD was that it agreed. There's a funny little fella who you all know. He can cheer you up when you're In 1956, MAD's new editor, Al Feldstein, decided they needed a mascot, something as identifiable as Playboy's bunny. He settled on a painting of a gap-toothed, wiseacre boy with the motto, What? Me worry? Alfred E. Newman, the face, was something that had been used over and over by different artists throughout the 20th and back into the 19th century, until Mad really took him and really made him their centerpiece. They put Alfred E. Newman on the cover of just about every issue. That devil-may-care grin seemed like an invitation to something naughty. It was always something I sort of hid. <laughs> I don't know why. That's Mark Drop, who writes for Disney TV. He says Matt had a big influence on his writing. There was a, a, an older kid in the neighborhood who had a tree house, and, and uh, when he wasn't around to chuck rocks at us, we would sneak up there, you know, and, and up in his treehouse he had a stack of old Playboys, and inside that stack was, was the first Mad magazine I ever saw. Kids were attracted to mad, subversive counterculture feel, but also to the goofy, violent slapstick of Spy vs. Spy and Don Martin cartoons, and really weird, inventive things like the fold-in. I'm Al Jaffe, and I've been doing the fold-in for 50 years. 93-year-old Jaffe came up with the fold-in while looking at the glossy, full-color fold-outs in Playboy, National Geographic, and Life. So I looked at these things, and there was a a sort of mark of pretentiousness about it. And of course, that naturally triggers the opposite point of view if you're working for MAD. So Jaffe made a funny drawing with a message below, and there were instructions for the reader to fold arrow A to arrow B in order to transform the picture and message. 
he brought the demo to editor Al Feldstein. I said, I think this is a funny idea, but you're not going to buy it because it mutilates the magazine. He looked at it and he was intrigued. He grabbed it, he says, let me go. And he rushed into Bill Gaines and came out two minutes later and said, we're going to do it. Bill said, if they mutilate the magazine, they'll buy another one to save. Another example of Mad's new visual comedy was the Marginal Thinking Department by artist Sergio Aragones. Which are these tiny, scratchy little drawings just embedded in the margins and little gutters of the magazine. Mad fan George Babiak would pour over each issue with a fine-toothed comb. Each little cartoon was microscopic. It was like taking the magazine down to its molecular level and finding the jokes that made up the whole magazine, the little atomic-sized jokes. That's an interesting thing about MAD. It was funny, but it was kind of an education. They'd talk about stupid TV shows and then global politics. In 1963, they did a Cold War parody called When You're a Red. When you're a red, you're a red. All the way from your first party perch to your last power play. When you're it featured drawings of Nikita Khrushchev dancing around with a street gang. That's George Babiak singing. You set off a test. And when you're halfway through it, you point to the west and say they drove you to it. That's how you do it. When you're a red and some land you invade, always say your attacks, just a new kind of aid. Then they'll be red or else they're dead. I'm uh, Arnie Kogan. I'm a comedy writer. I've been writing for Mad Magazine since 1959. Kogan also wrote gags for Jackie Gleason, Johnny Carson, and Carol Burnett. He still writes a lot of Mad's movie parodies. I never aimed anything at kids. I just wrote what I thought was funny. And if kids got it, they got it. If they didn't get it, that's, that was their problem. Or they would learn to get it, or they'd look it up. It was like a secret window into the adult world. I mean, how many 12-year-olds had seen Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? In fact, he was sort of a flop, a great big fat flop. Stop it, mother. I hope that was an empty bottle, George. You can't afford to waste good liquor. Not on your salary, not on an associate professor's salary. Here's the mad version. Well, here we are, me, the dirty, rotten daughter of a university president, and you, a dirty, rotten history teacher. It's two o'clock in the morning, and we've just returned from our faculty party to our dirty, rotten home. If you recognize the voice, that's Brooke Gladstone from On the Media with her co-host, Bob Garfield. Right. <laughs> and now we're going to play dirty, rotten games for the rest of the night, because through these games, the author plans to dramatically strip away our facades and reveal the fulsome phantasmagoria of base rot that permeates our souls. That sounds deep. What in hell does it mean? It means that this is an art film, so now the censors will have to let us talk dirty. I knew there were strange things going on in my own dysfunctional family that I really didn't understand and that were really disturbing and weird. 
That's Maria Reidelbach, the mad historian. And when I read the parody of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, I could see that, even though it was like this warped funhouse mirror version of Edward Albee's funhouse mirror version of this couple. It spoke to me. The late Roger Ebert said stuff like that taught him how to be a film critic. He wrote, Mad's parodies made me aware of the machine inside the skin of the way a movie might look original on the outside, while inside, it was just recycling the same old dumb formulas. And even now, the jokes don't talk down to kids. I think it's really funny. The things in here, they're just so, they're classic stupid humor. It's hilarious. 11-year-old Liam Schmidt's dad just gave him his first issue of Mad. And I, I open it, I start reading and I start reading it. Oh, this is this is really funny. The real reasons Vladimir Putin hates America. And I read all of them and then I saw this one and it's so funny. He can see Sarah Palin from his house because it's just like, There's a drawing of a goofy-looking Palin standing outside Putin's window. She's like, "Hello." It's really funny. <laughs> it's just hilarious. Nine-year-old Elizabeth Aldous didn't get the Palin joke, but she definitely got the parody of Pharrell Williams' Happy. The mad version is Appy. Because I'm Appy, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Skype, I'm even on my space. It's about some poor soul addicted to his smartphone. Because I'm happy living in an alleyway, sleeping on a pile of trash. Because I'm happy got my phone turned back on by selling my blood for cash. Because I'm happy... A couple of generations of adults have now been reared on MAD. If you go to the writer's room of a show like The Simpsons, all MAD fans. Al Jean is that show's executive producer. Well, there's things that we do that are just like MAD, you know, movie parodies, song parodies... Um, the, you know, sort of wise guy sensibility. I, I mean, I think too, you know, like Mad, we try to reach for an audience where kids are a given, but we go for adults. He says that like Mad packed every inch of the page with jokes. A Simpsons episode was packed so full, fans needed to freeze the frames. Pause, we knew people had VCRs that they could pause and we would put things in that you could never catch on a first viewing at regular speed, but you could pause and read if you wanted to and rewarded people for doing it. <gasps> Mad Magazine! <sighs> the writers paid homage in this episode when Bart is visiting New York. Excuse me, is this Mad Magazine? No, it's Mademoiselle. We're buying our sign on the installment plan. <laughs> uh, seriously, though, um, my name is Bart Simpson. My father has a subscription. I'd like the grand tour, please. Listen, kid, you probably think lots of crazy stuff goes on in there, but this is just a place of business. Oh, okay. A dejected Bart turns to leave. Suddenly, a door opens, and Mad's mascot, Alfred E. Newman, pokes his head out. Give me Kaputnik and Phonebone. I want to see the drawings for the new kids on the blick. Behind Alfred, the inner sanctum is a fantasy funhouse. People bouncing around on pogo sticks, zeppelins flying through the air, the spy versus spy guys detonating bombs. Bart's jaw drops. Wow. I will never wash these eyes again. Well, I think as a kid, you would imagine if you went to Mad Magazine, it would be like the equivalent of a a comedy Disneyland. But if you actually went there as a kid... My name is Jake Hogan. I'm a comedy writer for movies and television, and I've been getting laid because my dad writes for Mad since I was in fifth grade. (laughs) 
Jay was one of the original writers for The Simpsons. His dad is Arnie Kogan, who writes mad movie parodies. And I used to tell my story of going to Mad Magazine with my my dad to the Simpson writers, and it was like the most boring, uh, un, unhappy place. Quiet secretaries, typing, waiting for lunch. Uh, could have been any accounting firm, and it was it was it was not quite as much fun as an accounting firm. Deloitte & Tooch has better parties. (laughs) But whether or not the office is an exciting place to hang out, Mad's current editor, John Ficarra, believes there's no denying the impact that the magazine has had on the comedy world. There wouldn't have been National Lampoon without Mad. There wouldn't have been Spy Magazine without Mad. There wouldn't have been The Simpsons without Mad. There wouldn't have been Saturday Night Live without Mad. And the airplane movies? And David Letterman, who was a finalist in their Alfred E. Newman lookalike contest. South Park, The Daily Show... Colbert Rapport, and even one not-so-humorous but very popular TV drama. Good morning, Sterling Cooper Draper Price. How may I help you? Matthew Weiner, creator of Mad Men, says Mad's complete contempt for advertising was part of his inspiration for the TV show. The magazine gave him his first picture of, quote, this drunken, callow, glib, self-serving ad man. The ad man must catch the 802. This is Mad's Madison Avenue Primer, read by former editor Nick Meglin. All ad men must catch the 802. It's a fast commuter train. It has never been more than two hours late, but it has a club bar. All aboard, says the conductor. Chug, chug, says the train. Gulp, gulp, says the ad man. Would you like bourbon for breakfast, too? When Matthew Weiner came to write Mad Men, with its boozy, smoky, sexist, racist characters, he had a message about that era. But Nick Meglin says Mad never had an agenda. We've always considered ourselves just a funhouse mirror reflection on the society at the time. We kicked whatever politician was in office at the time, not a particular party. We just, you know, if you want to be president, fine. You're going to take whatever fun that we can throw at you. And, you know, you, you make us, you make yourself the target and we have the bow and arrows of humor. In 1955, when MAD began, it was just one bow, shooting arrows at powerful, huge targets. It reached its high watermark of two million in sales in 1974 when it reflected the nation's cynicism over Vietnam and Watergate. But now, there's a 24-7 comedy media that reveres nothing, fires constantly, and never runs out of arrows. Mad won. I mean, mad is now the dominant culture. The culture is now a culture of snark. Snark is normal now. Sociologist Todd Gitlin of Columbia University. Today, in general, being unserious is the premium posture. I think we have a culture of disposable humor and not a culture that stops anybody in their tracks and says, this is all bloody awful. Gags are what we do here. Taking something too seriously is considered not getting it. And the worst thing in the world is not to get it. And even a comedy writer like Jay Kogan sometimes wonders, is there a downside to Mad's takeover of American culture? It supports the idea that that it's better to be cynical and examine something, then really feel something. And over time, I've felt that I've been much more ready to pick something apart and to, uh, and to make fun of it 
rather than to just enjoy it for the truth or the fun that it is. I don't think until I actually had a child was I able to really appreciate that there is such a thing as innocent joy. <laughs> and innocent joy is a pretty good thing. And that's not the kind of thing that we're, you know, extolling in Mad Magazine or almost anywhere else on the spectrum of comedy. There's something to be said for sincerity. Our American Icon story was produced by Trey Kay in 2014. Since we first aired it, Bill Morrison took over for John Ficarra as editor of MAD. Cartoonist Al Jaffe is 98, and fan Liam Schmidt is now a teenager. You can listen to dozens more stories from our American Icon series at studio360.org. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 wherever you get podcasts.